0: Get your quote today at progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust progressive progressive casualty insurance company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the sports media podcast. My producers are Patrick Antonetti and Sean Sherry. This week, uh, three guests, uh, broken down into two segments. The first, uh, segment is an examination of the nba's viewership issues just a single subject but uh, we go pretty deep in it austin carp is the managing editor for the sports business daily and sports business journal and one of the country's foremost sports television rating experts he is joined by anthony croopy a sports media reporter for sportico longtime ad age staffer and again one of the country's foremost sports television rating experts We get into a discussion on NBA viewership, where it's heading, the impact of LeBron James on viewership, whether the NBA support for China and Black Lives Matter has had any uh, impact on um, viewership. We talk about the Ethan Strauss piece. He's a colleague of mine at The Athletic who wrote a piece on the NBA viewership last week. So if you're an NBA fan, I think you will uh, really enjoy that discussion. They are followed by Kate Abdow. the uh, host of the UEFA Champions League and the Europa League for CBS Sports, also hosts premier uh, boxing champions on Fox. She has been a significant uh, face when it comes to uh, soccer, a global soccer in both the United States and the UK. She does an incredible job, so talented. Um, We talk about what's been a crazy stretch for her working for Fox Turner and CBS over the last couple of months, how her CBS job came about, traveling to London to uh, host the Champions League coverage for CBS All Access. And then uh, Kate is fluent in Spanish, French, and German. And she is able to translate interviews in real time in these different languages uh, during the Champions League. I've never seen anybody else in broadcasting do this. Uh, And maybe they've done this in Europe, but... Um, her ability to do that is, in, is incredible and makes her such a great asset for uh, any network uh, where she's hosting global soccer. So, a discussion with Austin Karp and Anthony Kruppi on NBA ratings, followed by Kate Abdo coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right. As I said at the top, um, the first part of this podcast will be a discussion on one topic, and that's NBA viewership. And I cannot have two better people. Uh, to be on this podcast, if you follow me on Twitter, you have seen me, uh, as they say in wrestling, put over these guys uh, as much as possible because I have great respect for the fact that they traffic in viewership and ratings every day. Austin Carp is a managing editor, or the managing editor, I should say, for the Sports Business Daily and Journal. Certainly, one of the country's foremost sports ratings uh, experts. Sports television ratings experts, I should say. Anthony Krupe is a sports media reporter for Sportico. He's a longtime Ad Age staffer, if you read that publication. And like Austin Karp, one of the uh, foremost uh, sports television viewership experts in the United States. I am uh, pleased to be joined by both of these guys. Um, Anthony, I'm going to start with you. Austin, the same question. You will get so, Anthony. This well here. Here we'll start our discussion. Very open-ended, broad question. How would you evaluate the NBA's viewership right now on a macro level?
1: The uh, fundamental problem is uh, that the audience isn't really there in 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 the amount of you know bulk that it was even just a year ago. Um, the Nielsen. Uh, Data Deck came out for the quarter. Uh, Actually, it's the first quarter, so they they lag a little bit. But uh, it was the first time ever that uh, mobile phone use, basically uh, apps and Internet, uh, beat live TV use for all adults, so anyone 18 plus. Uh, The cord cutting in the second quarter uh, was... Something along the lines of eight percent, so that's a record. Uh, the idea that the uh, coronavirus and the, um, you know the attending lockdown slash quarantine shelter in place uh, was going to be a boon to television viewing never played out. There was a there was a four or five week period in the very beginning, back in March April, when there were about a four four to five percent increase year to year in in TV usage and that disappeared right away as it stands right now uh the television viewing is down eight percent year over year for the summer season it's down 19 percent for broadcast and 18 to 49 which is you know if we're being honest that's that's who the NDA and pretty much everybody else who advertises is interested in that's down 36 percent uh in in the last four years, PV as a whole has lost 52% of of its target audience. It's just gone. and It's not coming back. So against all that, you know, the NBA came back against all that. It seems to be, yes, it's down year over year. The primetime games have been up, uh, it, it, it definitely doesn't seem like the kind of thing that people should be in any way concerned about, especially since what we're talking about is very limited ratings. The, the numbers don't get scale until you get to the championship conference series and, and, and the finals. And like baseball, you got to hope for two big markets and you got to hope for a six- or seven-game series. So it, there's a lot of the... You know the the kind of tumult over it that we're seeing online is just sort of made up out of thin air because it doesn't it doesn't reflect the reality of the situation, which is nobody was really expecting uh, a huge raise ratings to begin with. Certainly not the people that buy the advertising and certainly
0: not the networks. What about you, Austin? Same question.
1: Yeah, I think Anthony hit on a lot
2: of great points there. But I mean, if I had to describe it at the macro level, I'd say the NBA is down right now, but not out for sure. I mean, a couple of years ago when the Warriors were hitting on all cylinders, we were talking, not we, but some people were talking about, oh, the NBA, when are they going to take over the NFL? And now we're talking about the NBA like it's the Titanic, and we have to find some sort of happy medium there. And that's usually where the truth lies. Uh, Their ratings are down year over year, like Anthony was talking about. I think they were down 12% headed into the All-Star break. So being down right now, it it was something we were going to expect. And a lot of the networks were backloading their schedule with you know Lakers and LeBron games, and they didn't get the you know a lot of that, so they couldn't close the gap on that a little bit. But uh, you know the seeding round games, uh, like the playoffs now, a lot of those afternoon windows, so they weren't getting incredible numbers. And uh, last year, you know, like Anthony alluded to, they were starting on ABC and with some of the 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 better windows, and they have to deal with the one o'clock games. Now the only good numbers you're going to see are when you know you have Trailblazers and Lakers at nine o'clock. Uh, in that window but long term I'm still not worried about the NBA Uh, I think they're going to continue to get those rights increases big rights increases uh, in the United States and what they have going for them long term is when you look beyond the United States is they're going to be getting media packages in parts of the world where they don't even know what the NFL is I'm talking you know from the Balkans to the Baltics you know they're growing gangbusters in places like that Australia South America back in Western Europe uh, Japan China. They're going to be getting media deals that the NFL is not going to have the luxury, or baseball is not going to have the luxury of. So, long term, health, financial health wise, I think the NBA is fine. But getting back to the United States, they have some issues this season for sure. Um, You know, no real Warriors team to watch, no Kevin Durant to watch. Uh, Zion didn't really get back into the swing of things, didn't get into the NBA until mid January. So, there were a lot of things going against the NBA right now. But I, I think, you know, these things are cyclical. And we'll see the NBA come back up. In terms of just the overall TV landscape, Anthony again was you know completely right. like TV watching is just down. And when you look but when when you look at what people are watching, it is still the live sports and it is live in general. If you look at the list of what is the most watched on cable these days, uh, you know it's names like Hannity, Maddow and Tucker, whereas uh, five, six years ago it was, Syndication for Friends and Seinfeld and you're just not seeing those shows have the same sort of return now.
0: Austin, I'm going to stick with um you from your best interpretation. Um, is there any way to measure what the viewership is in the in the bubble versus what the viewership was during the same kind of time frame last year outside of the bubble?
2: I know, I think it's a it's an apples to orange comparison. I think you can give a number um you know, I think we uh, ran, we ran numbers that the seeding round averaged around 1.3 million viewers in there. But if uh, I was looking all over the place for some sort of comparison, what can what can I what can I compare this to? I mean, it, it's not even really the first round of the NCAA tournament because that, there's so much fervor around that uh, that first round of games. Like it, it was really tough to make that sort of comparison. So you kind of just want to let it lie. We are just at what is such a unique inflection point in our country when you consider not just covid but where audiences are watching what they watch that it's just going to be real tough to make a comparison to not just last season but earlier in this regular season and uh, like anthony also said when you get into these later rounds i think you'll be able to get maybe a better idea the conference uh finals and then the finals maybe you can make some sort of year-over-year comparison there
0: anthony i know you um you know, you—you're one of the th- really things I appreciate about your uh, Twitter feed, and then obviously if you sort of follow your stuff at Sporticon before that at Ad Age, um, you know you're really dialed down deep in terms of, in terms of numbers, in terms of what demos mean. Uh, have you? I'll, sort of the same thing that I just asked Austin. Is there? You know, the NBA is, of course, going to push their 18 to 34 uh, numbers because they're winning those nights where, obviously, like uh, Fox's juggernaut with Tucker Carlson, Lauren and Graham, etc. They're probably drawing the most viewers on on any night, at least in at least in cable. What, what can you sort of tell my listeners in terms of like, what, how do you interpret whatever you are interpreting right at this moment from the early NBA playoff numbers?
1: A lot of the stuff you know, we're not getting the data on the actual deliveries on the apps and streaming Uh, for what we do have. The 1834 numbers are, are pretty strong. Uh, The one thing I would worry about if I'm the NBA, as we go deeper into the postseason is it's kind of an all or nothing year. Uh, If you look at the numbers, like often was saying, the numbers were down about twelve percent before everything closed down in March, but if you look at the you know the the highest rated games season to date, take out the three uh, Christmas Day games that were that didn't feature the Lakers, and every single game in the top I don't know how many more than ten are Laker games because they're you know the Warriors aren't around uh so it's if Barkley's assertion that uh the Lakers were going to get swept which now that we know is not that's not going to happen with everybody read a sigh of relief about that uh that'd be a disaster and I you, you got to worry when when all your eggs are in one sort of hype basket because uh uh, that's that's not going to be great going forward. I also I'm not incredibly thrilled that Philly and Boston are playing in the first round. I mean you're automatically going to lose one huge East Coast franchise. Uh, any kind of combination of Lakers, Philly or uh, Lakers, Boston, you know you're going to get big numbers on the other end. So it, there, there are a couple things that I would worry about that, that they don't have any control over, but the demographics aren't one of
2: them. I mean, back-to-back years of uh, potentially Toronto in the finals is not going to help either. You're just you're losing a major North American market that you're not getting any numbers from. And You know that that hurt some numbers last year. But like Anthony said, without I mean the late, the NBA kind of has a old school or recent PGA Tour Tiger situation if LeBron leaves. And you're kind of figuring out who can carry the load there and bring those numbers up.
0: Let me ask you: um, You mentioned LeBron, so let's talk about him for a second, Um, Austin. What do you think this league's future is post-LeBron? At a certain point, I'm going to sort of give you my thesis on the NBA. I want to sort of get your guys' take first, but this is it. This is a legitimate issue and an important issue. And it's not that the NBA isn't devoid of stars. It's actually, quite frankly, a star-making league. That said. Uh, LeBron James is far and away the closest, uh, sort of viewership, uh, standard bearer to Michael Jordan that the league has had. We've seen his impact when he moves East coast to West coast. So, you know, looking, and again, we're not going to know until it actually happens, but looking three or four years down the road, Austin, um, I guess I will add the better question for me to ask you is, do they need another LeBron, LeBron James to replace what LeBron James has given them for more than a decade?
2: You know, I, I, yeah, I think they're going to need somebody to take that mantle, but the NBA has been through this before. They needed somebody to pick it up from Michael and Kobe was there. They were like, who's going to pick it up from Kobe? And LeBron has picked it up. The NBA, like you said, is great at developing star power and somebody will emerge. I don't know who it's going to be, what market it's going to be. might be somebody on a team that It moves to another city. moves to another super team that we don't know about is created. There are just so many uh, variables when you're looking that far out, uh, even three or four years. But I think the NBA will get it. I think this is just a cyclical thing, and they're going to continue to see ups and downs. But I think in the long term, uh, my bet is still on a strong
0: NBA. What about you, uh, Anthony? I think
1: the great thing about uh, the LeBron situation is that He's going to be still around when they work out their next meteorites package, and that's really not to be cynical, but that's all that matters. You know, the money's coming in. Uh, LeBron will still be there. Uh, so I, you know, I agree. It's it's like it's like television creates stars. Stars don't create TV. I think you alluded to friends earlier, Carp, and uh, it's it's funny because you know those there were like six people nobody had ever heard of. Maybe you remembered Courtney Cox from the Bruce Springsteen video, but, you know, that was the biggest comedy on TV besides Seinfeld, which was four other people nobody had ever heard of, uh, you know, unless you were a comedy nerd. Uh, And those turned out to be huge. So it is a star-making league. It is – you never know who's coming around the corner. I mean, you certainly – even though ESPN started covering him when he was in his diapers, it was hard to say what kind of impact LeBron James was going to have when he actually made it to the NBA. But uh, I, I'm not too worried that uh, there isn't the next LeBron out there somewhere. I think that the cyclical thing is, is true. It's, it's he's he's out there somewhere. We just don't know him yet, and uh, I, I don't think we got to worry about it.
2: He might be in junior high right now. Like, yeah. <laughs>
0: So, all right, before we get to the piece that Ethan Strauss wrote in The Athletic, which I, I think both of you guys um, have read, which obviously got a lot of attention and understandably so, uh, let me give you... Awesome, let me give you sort of my, my quick thesis here on the NBA. And, uh, you know, agree, disagree, comment on it, but I want to... Uh, same for you, Anthony. I want to get your take on this as well. Um, so, in short, like... I, the NBA does have a viewership issue right now. I think if you, I love the league, but you know, I'm not naive to it. The the numbers are down. And I think you have to Exactly exa- right. Down is down. As we all say in the business, you got to acknowledge that exists. Now the real interesting question of course, is like, why are they down? And how much of that is sort of like macro, larger, um, uh, you know, institutional factors, how much of it is league based. So for me, some of the things that I think about in terms of why the league is down right now, and that's this is not just a year over year thing, but why the league's been down for a little bit. One, the league has gotten essentially nothing in national viewership from the number one and number three media markets. New York and Chicago have given this league nothing for a long time, which is a killer. It's just a killer. Uh, you two are smarter than me on this, and it's not necessarily that like the biggest population centers are necessary like the greatest media markets. But at the end of the day, like you you need bodies. And like if these two teams were good, you would have significant population increases or significant viewership increases just because you'd have the New York market and the Chicago market sampling your product. Right now, they give you absolutely nothing in terms of national teams, and at the same time they give you very little in terms of following the teams in the playoffs because I don't think Knicks fans are Bulls fans, quite frankly, um, have shown that they particularly care or love to follow uh, you know, the Warriors or the Clippers, et cetera. So that's part one. Part two, and I think, Austin, you hit on this, Golden State was the league standard bearer for years outside of LeBron. I, I remember writing story after story, uh, whether it was at SI or a little bit on The Athletic, but more at SI, just on how important that team was to the league. If you remember when they were going after the Bulls' schedule— Look at how the league and the and the partners sort of manipulated it to get. Basically, Golden State became like a regional network for everybody. We basically were getting every single one of their games on national TV, which was smart, and the ratings were great because they were incredibly fun and aesthetically beautiful team to watch. This year, they've given you absolutely nothing, so it, it went from basically a massive uh, national team to a dead team. Uh, in terms of national, so that's part two. Part three, Zion Williamson was expected to provide a massive viewership, given his games in college. I think Austin wrote about this. Uh, Duke's regular season games on ESPN were drawing like two, two more than two million, up 30% over the year before. Uh, you can directly draw the map to Zion. Uh, you know, I love RJ Barrett as now I'm living in Canada, but let's be honest, it was Zion Williamson who people were coming in to watch. So that's due. Austin has pointed this out. The league gets nothing from Toronto, which is a phenomenal team, but Nielsen doesn't rate the Toronto market. So if Toronto explodes in the playoffs, the the league gets nothing from, from them. The league doesn't get much from Milwaukee either. A great team with an incredible star in Giannis, but um, it's a 36th market in the country, and that's not going to help them. They need an East Coast team, in my opinion, to become great. Maybe Brooklyn becomes that with Durant and Kyrie, but they get nothing right now from New York, Chicago. I know it's on uh, East Coast, but sort of just stay with me here. Boston and Philly, even though they're good teams, um, Embiid and Simmons are not the draw that LeBron was when he was in Cleveland. And Boston, which is a great team, I don't think Tatum, Hayward, and those guys are national draws either. So that's all factors to me. Do I think... And I apologize for filibustering here in advance guys, but I'll let you talk in a second. Do, do I think the NBA do I think there are people in the league, I'm sorry, do I think there are people out there who like don't like the fact that NBA the NBA has social activism and has Black Lives Matter on the court? Of course. Do I think it's statistically significant? I do not. Do I think the league deserves criticism for their relationship with China? Absolutely. They're, they're, how they handled China initially was a shit show, and they really should think about their long-term relationship with China, to be honest. But do I think that people are actively turning off the NBA because of their relationship with China? No. I, I, I just I don't think that is a large swath of people. So this is my long way, and now I'm going to see to you, Austin, to say that I think if some of the things that I mentioned change, like a couple of them, I think you get a ratings pop do I think you're gonna go back to the Jordan era or the the heights of LeBron no but if any of the things I mentioned could flip especially New York or Chicago um, and especially if the Nets next year actually become destination viewing with Durant, I, I think the viewership changes uh, and I'd love to get your comments on uh, you know my long uh, rambling statement uh, to to the jury there go ahead awesome I'm gonna t-
2: I'm gonna take part 16 <laughs> first you. if that's yeah. okay. <laughs> no, I mean, just we'll start at the beginning. Fixing the New York market, yeah, that could be a real huge boost to, to get competitive balance between the East and the West and get some sort of semblance uh, of a respectable team that you can put on national TV in Madison Square Garden. Um, selling out seats is fine. Uh, the Garden's always going to sell out. But uh, people, I think NBA fans and sports fans and even casual sports fans are smart enough to know that they don't need to watch a Knicks game right now. They need to they need to improve that team, but you know the NBA has seen peaks and valleys with their viewership uh, all during this you know Knicks uh, whatever you want to call it. it it's been over a decade now, so that would just be icing on the cake if they can get new superstars and an improved New York market. And same goes for Chicago; they were fun to watch with Derrick Rose, and you know they just have to they have to draft right, and they can you know, really improve that market. But long term, I, I think they're going to be. You know, in, in a good spot. They just have some minor tweaks that they have to make. They are really trying. They're being innovative with how they offer the product. I mean, Anthony talked about earlier, this young demo and how they just, they go in and out. And the NBA was among the first to start offering, okay, you can watch this quarter. You can watch half a game. You can watch just one game. So they are trying and they're experimenting to see what works. They are one of the most active leagues out there with various social media platforms, whether it's you know Twitter and YouTube and TikTok, um, and with relation to what you were speaking with on you know the political aspects and the Black Lives Matter movement, I think a lot of the people out there on social media that are harping on, oh I cannot believe they're doing this. I'm not sure that they were watching NBA games to begin with, and I think a casual sports fan you know can can really see see through all that and will tune in for a good product. You put a good product on the court, you put a good product
1: on TV. People are going to watch it, Anthony. Yeah, I, I, I agree with Austin a hundred percent. When you know, when some guy on the uh, uh, from the Daily Trooper is uh, mouth farting on Twitter about how he's never going to watch the NBA again because it's Black Lives Matter, I don't think we're losing a lot of ratings points there. I don't think the guy was actually the biggest fan. Uh, one of the things we've been hearing is people saying, "Oh, I don't like watching the games because I don't know who's playing because." You know, they've got those slogans on their backs. Like, you're not much of a fan then, are you? Uh, these are not the kind of people that you really got to worry about losing because, frankly, I don't think they were really contributing to the ratings, Kitty, to begin with. In terms of the Knicks, as a Knicks fan, you do this, there's a grim, horrible calculus, and it's basically, will I live longer than James Dolan? And if the answer to that is no then you're never going to see the Knicks win. Uh, so that's that's that with New York. Maybe we get somebody with somebody in Brooklyn. Uh, I think the uh, Warriors uh, comeback narrative is going to be huge. I think, you know, you know, once Steph is back and once everybody's back in place, even if they're not hitting on all cylinders right away, because they won't have played together as a unit in a very long time. And it pieces that have since moved out of the frame that's going to be a big story you know people everybody's going to be watching them like can they do it again we love comeback narratives you know rocky rocky lost the first fight Uh, uh i think that could be one of the biggest stories of next season if we have a season
2: yeah, I, I, I agree with Anthony there. I mean, and the fact that they get the number two pick, you're talking about like, you know, that 2004 Pistons team where, you know, they had the number two pick. And as long as the Warriors don't go ahead and take Darko Milicic, you know, they're going to have a really loaded team or, you know, I, he might trade that pick, uh, Bob Myers, and and create some, and trade for something, a, a veteran that can come in and help them continue to compete immediately. So, yeah, I, I agree with Anthony that the Warriors are a very interesting situation
1: to watch. You'd mentioned it's funny, Milwaukee because it's such a tiny DMA, it doesn't really contribute much to the national rating. And what's funny and this is why you gotta keep everything in its own category. You can't look at the NBA like, like it's the NFL. You know, the, the NFL is the eight hundred pound gorilla and it lives in its own biosphere and nothing touches it. And so when you even see little fluctuations, you see the freakouts and stuff. You're way parenthetically, no, we're not going to get an election year drop because, frankly, there's the novelty's gone. You know, four years ago it was like, holy shit, what's this guy going to say next? He's crazy. This is this is must see TV. Now it's like nobody on either side is excited. It's like let's just get this over with. Let's just let's just get this over with. Nobody's going to be like, oh, I'm not going to watch football this year because. CNN is having a retrospective about, uh, you know, real estate deals from 1974. It's, it's not going to happen. Anyway, Green Bay Packers are usually the number two or number three rated team behind the Patriots when they have a big year. So they're just, they've got a national brand. They come from the tiniest set on the market, one of the s- smaller markets in the top hundred, and yet they deliver. So there's just a, the mechanics of how ratings work for the NFL uh, versus the NBA. That 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 gives you a reminder, I think, in a, in a sense of when we talk about ratings, how everything's relative, and you can't just sort of like paint everything with a with a broad brush. Just one quick thing we we haven't touched
2: on, and you brought up the, brought this up just now, is you know NBA versus NHL. Is yeah, the NBA has the national numbers but something the NFL doesn't have is and we don't ever really talk about is the tonnage of RSN viewership that they get over the course of a regular season and it's something that is often dismissed and just needs to be you know brought up every now and again that they have the games on national TV and the games in the local markets and we don't ever really add them together
0: okay i w- i want to get to the uh the piece that Ethan Strauss uh, my colleague at Athletic wrote um about the about NBA viewership, which obviously got a lot of attention, and his main data point—I'm I'm presuming both you guys read it. I know that Anthony did. Um, his main data point was that the ABC games were down, f- or, or are down, forty-five percent off what the NBA averaged back in 2011. So what they averaged back, uh, you know, eight nine years ago, um, a drop from a little under five and a half million to a little under. Three million. So that's the ABC games. TNT's average NBA viewership down forty percent, according to his data, ESPN down, uh, roughly twenty percent. And sort of, you know, he he the, the pieces um, sort of has a thesis that the NBA is it's not just cord cutting. The NBA has committed some unforced errors. They've antagonized and alienated potential fans. He referenced uh, NBA doing China's bidding and how much public commentary out of the league um, should be a, a lecture directed at people other than themselves, and and sort of made you know positive thought that the NBA needs to reestablish a a better connection with um, you know with Americans in, in general. Um, I I certainly um, would have run the piece. Uh, I like I like the fact that it ran in the Athletic. Uh, I mean I don't. I absolutely do not agree with the premise at all, and I think that will be proven otherwise. That is not to say that I think somehow that um, games are going to return to the you know the the halcyon days of Jordan or even LeBron's heights. I just I think a lot of this is cyclical. I spelled out how things can change in the NBA, and I'm not one who believes. And I guess we will learn in five years if I'm right or not that things the 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 connections or the nexus between social justice or things off the court somehow in, have great impact on viewership. Um, let me start with you, Austin, because I know you read the pieces as well. Um, what was your reaction or what is your reaction to sort of his thesis and some of the data points he spelled out there?
2: I mean, there's, you can argue that the NBA has missed at certain points. I agree that they missed on China. That was a, you know, a rare miss for Adam Silver since he started. Um, do I think that they miss re- with regards to the social justice issues? No, I think they're reading uh, the, the, the tea leaves correctly there. I think they're uh, reading their core demographics. And Adam Silver, I, I think, is just reading, reading the scene correctly with regards to that. There are going to be some minds that they step on. I think every league has that. I think every commissioner has that. I, I think every network has that. But I think they are still in a, in a good position you know, to continue to grow. Uh, The only thing I would – with relation to Ethan's piece, I mean, especially with his headline, the only thing I would have changed there is, you know, instead of saying that they have a serious viewership problem that they need to fix, it's just that the NBA has a viewership problem that it needs to fix. I'm not sure that is as serious as a lot of people are making it out to be. Like you said, we're not getting back to the Michael Jordan days, but baseball is not getting back to the late 90s Yankees days. And a lot of sports aren't getting back to where they were 10 years ago. Every network – is not getting back to where they were 10 years ago. OK, CBS is not going to keep cranking out all those shows that they used to have that were competing with sports games to be some of the top live, most viewed uh, telecast on TV every year. They're just not going to have that. It's going to be sports. It's going to be the NFL. It's going to be the Olympics when it's on. It's going to be political. Com- uh, Debates, maybe presidential debates, but you're not going to really see. You're not gonna, the Big Bang Theory is done. You're not going to see that crack that top 100 list anymore. It's going to be sports. The NBA Finals is going to be continue to be on there year in year out. So I'm still bullish on the NBA long term.
0: Austin, I'm sorry, not Austin. Uh, Anthony, I, I think we'll see more
1: clarity uh, when the shift becomes more apparent. Uh, we're looking at what Fox is doing with their primetime schedule. Uh, I think something like ninety percent of the ratings points the fall come from mixture of college football, although that's not going to happen this year. Uh, the NFL and baseball, um, especially the postseason. He, you know, this was a network that year after year was was winning the demo because they had American Idol, and that was a huge show. It was a huge phenomenon. That's over with. Like I was saying, that. The idea that we're ever going back to the media universe as it was eight years ago is a fallacy. I mean, we just in July passed uh, a moment where only 69% of the people who in the country, uh, the household, subscribed to traditional cable. That's a big drop. You know, that that's significant. If we get the measurement... And if, as, and I'm stealing this from uh, Mike Mulvihill from Fox, because uh, he's a hell of a lot smarter than I am, if the ecosystem does go to that Fox model, where let's let's just put it out there, put all the general entertainment stuff on OTT, because no one's watching the ads in the general entertainment programming. I mean, we had the data. Uh, the the C three trickery that they did in 14 years ago, hoping that they were going to somehow you know win out against uh, the, the privations of DVR and uh, ad skipping and ad avoidance, it didn't work, it, it, and it, it's never going to work. It's over with. Put all the entertainment stuff on OTT. Make broadcast television and cable television a medium for live events. Sports, news, Oscars, things of that nature, and and you're going to see a a definite shift in perception about how television really works. None of the the stuff in primetime makes sense anymore. They just don't, they can't even get enough ad dollars to pay for the production budget on most of the stuff because the deliveries are so awful.
2: Yeah, just something, another interesting nugget from Ethan's piece that really stuck out to me, and he didn't get too much into it there and said so, was about how that 55 plus demographic is kind of thrown away. And it's, you know, 18 to 49 or 25 to 54. The way that, you know, things are now, the way that this country is, that the buying power and the viewing power of that 55 plus demographic needs to be, you know, maybe examined a little closer and given a little more credence. You know, people are are working longer and living longer. And, uh, you know, I think that is something that needs to be looked at in particular. And, uh, you know, and also to echo what Anthony said, uh, you know, if if you aren't following, if you, if this is a topic you're interested in TV ratings and audience measurement, give Michael Mulvihill from Fox a follow on Twitter. Great information from him.
0: Yeah, great information. But, uh, you know, I, I like Mike a lot, but, you know. And I can't wait till he hears this part. But
2: he does work for a network. But correct, very smart yeah. Network. I mean, he's
0: you know he's very he's smart, and I like Mike. I, I really do. But let us never forget where Mike works. And at the same time, let us never forget where <laughs> I work and where Austin works and where Anthony works. There, there's always there's always a bit of an agenda setting when it comes to a lot of stuff. That said, uh, Mike has access to great. Uh, data man. Do I miss the old days of uh, Fox Sports PR guys like Dan Bell and Lou Demilio just forwarding uh info to Rudy Martski about the competition? Those were the fun days when uh when that stuff would get out there.
2: Oh, I wish I had saved this voice message. Uh, yeah, I had a voice message from Lou in my early
0: days where I got yelled at. I wish I had kept that.
2: Love Lou to death.
0: I'm gonna have you guys back when we get a little closer to the finals, uh, or maybe at the finals, because um you know naturally depending on who the teams are. Um, will I think dictate uh, significantly um, some viewership? Like if Toronto's there, obviously um, the numbers are going to be a little challenging as they were last year. But you know, if it's Lakers Celtics, um, which is what I'm sure the the league dreams of, um, you know, the numbers I think will will be up from from last year's Golden State Toronto final. But uh, Austin Carp. Is the managing editor for Sports Business Journal and Sports Business Daily. You can follow him on um, on Twitter. Let me make sure that I have his uh, handle right here. That is Austin Carp. His name A U S T I N K A R P. If you want uh, his uh, insights, and uh, I highly recommend him. And then Anthony Croupy of uh, Sportico, whose uh, Twitter handle is a little more annoying here. It's Croupy, croopy Croupy, three Croupies. C R U p i uh anthony of course uh did not have that uh uh seminar that we had at sports illustrated back in 2007 and 8 where they told you to get the shortest handle possible for twitter um guys i uh i appreciate very much your insight and for coming on today and uh and i will definitely have you back thanks so much for joining me today on the sports media podcast
2: appreciate it anthony thanks
0: All right, as I said at the top, um, Kate Abdo is the host of the UEFA Champions League and UEFA Europe, Europa League for CBS Sports. But if you are a soccer fan, um, you know Kate Abdo. It, it, it might take seriously like 45 minutes to like give her resume, so we'll reduce this a little bit because there you go, Kate. I, I, I only have so much oxygen, Kate. But um She has long covered the sport for Fox Sports, for Sky Sports. You've seen her on Champions League, Europa League, FIFA, uh, Men's and Women's World Cups, uh, English Premier League. Um, You saw her on Turner when they had uh, the Champions League. And she also does boxing on um, Fox and just one of the more versatile, at least in my opinion, one of the more versatile talents that exists right now in sports television. She's been on this podcast before. And it's great to welcome her back, Kate Abdel from London. Thank you for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast.
3: Thank you. I appreciate you having me back.
0: So, Kate, this has been uh, like a kind of just an incredibly uh, surreal professional stretch for you in the last 12 months, where you've worked for Fox, Turner, CBS, and at the same time, a pandemic (laughs) is going on, which, of course, affects everybody in the business. Um, Just sort of as a sort of a writ large kind of question, how surreal has this time for you been professionally given all uh, given all the professional movement you've had amid a global pandemic?
3: Yeah, you're not wrong. I mean, it's, it's felt like a crazy time in, in lots of different ways. I think, you know, when the pandemic hit and everything closed down, I'm that kind of person that is used to juggling different jobs and and used to kind of running back and forth from different locations you know with turner the job was in atlanta with fox most of what i did was either in la or in um in vegas with boxing or new york with boxing and so you're used to kind of all that travel and then everything just stopped from one day to the next and that was a that was a crazy feeling and to learn to have to kind of just be okay with not not doing anything took some adjustment for me um and then I think you know that developed into it. It actually looking like, well, hang on a second. These these shows might not come back. And what does what does life look like then? Because I think initially you know we were nobody really knew what this was, right? When COVID first hit, and everyone was kind of thinking, well, maybe this will be a couple of weeks, a month, two months max, and and then we'll kind of get back to some sense of normality. And that just kept on being pushed back and pushed back, and then. Bundesliga came back on Fox, but they decided it wasn't it wasn't the right time to put coverage around it. And then, you know, Turner decided that they weren't going to do coverage around Champions League. And everyone was kind of, all the networks, I guess, were, were looking at what they invest in because they were paying people and they weren't getting as much money in because they didn't have the advertising to sell. And I understand all the financial constraints of it, but it, it was definitely a it was a tough time to kind of figure out, well, well, what happens if, if I don't have these jobs and and how do I move forward? And then very, very quickly that scenario developed where Turner decided to let the Champions League go and CBS decided to pick it up. And I, I thought, well, they're picking up. So last minute, it would be ludicrous to expect that they will put coverage around it. Nobody would have time to organize that. And certainly nobody would have time to organize that during a global pandemic. And then, Pretty quickly after I heard that they'd picked it up, I got the call asking would I be interested and and to sit down and have a conversation with them about their vision, and which I was immediately on board with. I really liked their vision, and I just I think I've I've it's been so exciting for me to be working full stop again. But it's also just to be been really exciting to be working on a project where you feel like that the group around you and the network is so invested in this particular show and in this particular product. And I think with soccer, sometimes in America, you can end up feeling like it's it's way down the pecking order and it, it doesn't always get that love. And I feel that the one thing that CBS has really been keen to do is to show from the very beginning, we really care about this and we, we want to get it right. And we want to just not throw it on, you know, digital and just put the games Straight to air. We actually do want to put a show around it, and we want to invest in talent, and we want to make it feel like we care about Champions League. So that's been very cool for me.
0: Kid, how does it happen? Like, in, uh, the, does does your representation or agency reach out to CBS to sort of just at least make the inquiry to say, "Hey, um, you know, here's the ho- here was somebody who was hosting the Champions League on Turner. Um, what kind of uh, what kind of thought process do you guys have, or did the call literally come from? CBS unexpectedly, which um, yeah, which is which is doesn't always happen. But I think both of us know in the business.
3: Yeah, I think that actually Ed, there had been some kind of back and forth with CBS when we first found out that they had won the rights. Because do you remember they were supposed to have the rights from the season after next? In any case, they'd already won that that rights right. package, and so there's been some contact there. To be honest with you, I don't know how that works. I don't know if that my agent reaching out to them or their talent people reaching out to him. Um, I know that I'm always quite proactive slash annoying probably if you ask my agent in terms of identifying where I think, well, hey, maybe there's there's an opportunity here. Can we make sure that we're staying in contact with those people? Because the nature of the business is you you work on short-term contracts. And as much as I enjoy that, there's a nervousness to that as well because obviously you don't have that longevity of security and, and knowing that you have worked for the next however many years, so that's something I'm always I'm always aware of. I'm always looking for for different options, and and CBS was, was one that I thought was really interesting. As soon as I knew they'd won the rights, I just never expected it to to happen that quickly.
0: Um, the, CBS, Kate has the these rights through 2024. Um, I understand if you um, if you sort of want to be a little diplomatic here, but is it your expectation that you will continue beyond this year as the host of this property?
3: Yes, that is my expectation. Yeah, as far as far as, as I'm concerned, I'm, in, I'm involved long term. Um, and I think there's a lot of questions still to be answered in terms of where we're doing it, you know, who the other talent are moving forward. L- location, I think, is going to be a massive question because, you know, during a more normal time in the world, you can obviously look to travel talent in a way that that's just not possible right now. Because, I mean, me traveling over here to do this in London, I think that CBS thought that it was easier to get a group of people who are predominantly European based into London and also have a fully functioning studio, which they didn't have at the time, um, back home. So it just, it lent itself to to using London for this particular tournament in August and and to get this season finished up. But I think there's a lot of questions about moving forward from there. I had to do the, the two week self isolation here. So I flew in two weeks before our first day of, of meetings and rehearsals and just sat in a room for two weeks straight. And, you know, that's not something you can ask somebody to do on the regular, obviously not talking about myself, but, you know, other talent, etc. And so I think that that's definitely going to be a lot of questions still to, to be answered, but my hope is certainly that I'm involved for it for the long run. Yeah.
0: Kate, um, again, it's another one of these diplomatic, you know, put your United Nations hat on. You sort of have to be diplomatic here, but I think, um, <laughs> I think listeners will, um, will, sort of just appreciate your answer given that you could provide insight but from your perspective like what is different and perhaps even as interesting what is the same about working for fox turner and cbs you've not you you've now experienced at least a production and management part of three different entities that put on major sports in the united states what have you found to be similar what have you found to be different
3: yeah, actually, even this year, earlier this year, when it was the um, Deontay Wilder Tyson Fury rematch, I got to work with ESPN as well, so I also got some insight into into how they do things. So it's it's been that's really fascinating for me because you know in some ways I guess I lumped in my head I guess Euro- European TV on one side and then American TV on the other, and, and actually you know one American network is so different to the next, um, so that was that was mistaken. I, I think it's been. Hmm. It's been really interesting. Obviously the, the, the show is hugely different from Turner to, to CBS. Anybody who's watching will know that. Um, I think that with, with Turner, you know, they have that show inside or they have the show inside the NBA, which is such a brilliant show and is so popular for them. And I think that's kind of the model that they look to emulate. And I think that in some ways we tried to be that kind of, less structured, more free for all type show. And I think that everybody who was involved will probably say it didn't, it didn't work out the way we would have liked it to. It didn't work out perfectly. And there were some growing pains in that. Um, I think that what CBS, probably the one thing that has really, really benefited us on CBS, I think is the fact that the guy who's in charge of this, who is CBS's creative director, who's Pete Radovich, who I'm sure you know of, um, is not only a a really talented TV mind, he's also an enormous soccer fan and has been for years. And he's kind of steeped in that soccer culture, the understanding of the soccer community. I think those are things that have really benefited us at CBS, just because the person that has been making some of these decisions really gets the soccer community. And I think, unfortunately, although I understand the, the desire to always grow the game and to bring in, you know, the wider sports fan in America. I think sometimes at Turner, we actually didn't cater to that core fan. Who is the fan who's going to subscribe to a BR Live and actually pay the however many dollars to be able to watch what you do? Um, So I I think that that's helped us enormously there. In terms of differences of approach, you know, Turner is, is kind of driven by that, the culture of inside the NBA, I think. And, and how popular that show is and how can they replicate that elsewhere. CBS seems to me to be um, very very polished in terms of the way they put out T V and I think I think what I've enjoyed with CBS is that I, I kind of have the structure that I would I would get at a Fox show but also we've given the space um to personality that sometimes because I think Fox is is so fast moving. This is true of all American TV, you know, everybody is kind of, everything's fast paced. And in Europe, you know, the analysts are given 20 minutes to get a point out. And in America you learn, actually this works a lot better if it's succinct and fast paced and it it maintains interest and and engages people. And I think that Fox does that really well, but sometimes on some of our shows, I felt like I didn't get to see the personality of some of the analysts for that reason, because we were so intent on moving quickly. I think what I've really enjoyed with CBS is that kind of balance between the two of Turner and Fox, where it's been, yes, we've got that structure in place. And yes, we're really nailed down in terms of the analysis. We want to do the in-depth stuff we want to give the audience, but we also allow personalities like a Peter Schmeichel, who I'd never seen have fun on screen before. It's just been a revelation to me. Um, or a Micah Richards or different people, allow them to have that back and forth and, and let their personality shine. And it's the one thing I've really appreciated about working with Pete is that I think he has a great understanding of what makes each indif- individual that he's put in front of camera unique or stand out. And he's then catered to that and allowed them to be the best that they can be on air. And often it's actually just in TV. We hire the talent and here's our format and you guys have to kind of fit into that and hopefully it will work. But I think Pete, Pete approaches it from a different angle, and I, and I think it's been really beneficial for the group.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that answer. That's, that's actually really interesting, and, um, and that gives a pretty good perspective on on the differences, and I think you're very right. I think Turner is always trying to replicate, and understandably so, inside the NBA, which is, um, which is not an easy thing to do. Um, one more question sort of on um, some of these different networks. I know your passion for the Bundesliga, and I know it's been something that's, uh, that you've been part of for a while now. Uh, Bundesliga is now on, uh, ESPN plus it's, it's, a it's their property. Um, is that at least for, for you at the moment in your career, just something as much as you love that league, that the reality is you may not be doing that for a little bit.
3: Yeah, I think so. I think that's probably the case. Um, I don't know if ESPN would like to talk to me (laughs) and we can always have a conversation, but I think that, um, I I don't really know in terms of of Bundesliga. I have a great relationship with the the league itself and the people that run the league. I I lived in Germany for eight years. I covered the Bundesliga in Germany. So I I kind of feel like that's something that's really close to my heart. I was disappointed when, when it left Fox because we had a really tight knit group that worked on it. I think if you, if you do those shows, I mean, I'm sure that, you know, Rebecca and the Robbies and everybody knows this at NBC, when you're, when you're getting up at those times to do a, a European kickoff time, you'll start at really early and the day is pretty brutal. Um, I would be in makeup at, you know, 2.45 in the morning, three in the morning latest. And so you kind of, you develop even more of an affinity with the group and with the sport because you're so invested in doing it. Like nobody does that for fun. Um, and so I'll definitely miss doing the Bundesliga. I have no idea whether it would be in my future again. I'd love to. I love staying in touch with German football. I, you know, I've been super excited in Champions League to see a Hansi Flick and a Thomas Tuchel and a, a Julian Nagelsmann and all these guys kind of really shining on a big stage. Um, So it's been fun to me, but I I have no idea what the future holds as far as the Bundesliga and and hosting that goes.
0: Okay. Given your career, obviously you've, uh, you travel globally. Um, You know, you were, when you were doing, when you were based in, um, in Europe, uh, (laughs) I, I think anyone who sort of has either lived or is from, or is based in Europe understands that sort of travel is just sort of part of the lifestyle there Um, for this particular assignment for the hosting the champions league, you correct me if I'm wrong here, but you had to fly to London and then uh, go through a 14 day quarantine for people who have traveled from the United States, probably per um, per law in England. Um, What was that like just on a, on a personal note, you're traveling there obviously professionally for your job, but um, I, I would guess you've never had to quarantine 14 days before. For anything? What was that sort of personally like?
3: Yeah, no, I really haven't. It, it was definitely um, surreal. Obviously, I was invested in working again and excited to work and I knew that I had a big project ahead so to kind of have two weeks straight where there's no other distractions in some ways is a, is a great thing. I think if I'm honest, I was probably slightly nervous about traveling. You know, I, I hadn't traveled since everything locked down in March. Um, my fiancé lives in New York but he had had the virus Kind of early on, and so when then it came to it, it took a long time for him to be symptom free. So it took a long time for us to actually meet up again and see each other again because we have a distance relationship at the moment. Um, and so he then did the travel because he felt more comfortable with travelling and, and kind of shielding me more from that. So I hadn't travelled at all, so I was kind of nervous to see what it would be like. Um, But, you know, they they try and make obviously everything as as comfortable and as normal for you. But it's very strange to see LAX airport, you know, look as deserted as it was. Um, And then I think just that, you know, the experience of arriving here, coming into an apartment and feeling like I just, you're literally not supposed to leave. And I know that the UK government is, is following that very strictly. You are required to give information about where you're staying, contact information, I have heard of people who haven't stuck to the the self-isolation rules and, you know, have gone out and used a credit card or whatever they've done, and and that's been picked up on and they've been fined. Um, I think it's a great protocol to have, and I think it's a really sensible way to handle things. Um, I'm lucky. I I actually don't know that if I'd been flying from the U.S. without a British passport, whether you could have come in. Um, I think, actually, that would have been problematic. So I was lucky that I have the British passport and could still fly back. Two weeks straight in, you know, in four walls is, is never hugely fun. But fortunately, we live in a society where you can get pretty much everything delivered. I made sure that I I didn't take a normal hotel room because I thought, you know what, I would like to have a kitchen. I don't want to do room service three times a day. I'll just I like to cook. It's kind of a relaxer for me. So I thought, let me take somewhere that has a little kitchen. I can do a, a supermarket order. I'll get my food in and it will feel a little bit more homely. And so I did that for two weeks. I, I think I probably when I, when I finally got out and it was the first day and we had meetings and rehearsals, I was probably very chatty that day because I'd not had company <laughs> in a long time, but it, all in all it was, it was doable.
0: Uh, I can imagine. Um, how is your fiance's health at the moment? If he had COVID uh, a couple months ago.
3: He's great. Yeah, he's really good. Thank you. He actually, I mean, he's a trooper. He, he worked through it. He didn't feel good. He does a, he has a, a radio show of, radio slash TV show on zone um, about boxing. And so he, he managed to still do that throughout because obviously now at the moment you can do your, your radio and your TV and everything's been set up for him to do that from home. Um, so he struggled through it. He, he's somebody who doesn't ever really like to, doesn't like to show any weakness. Um, but it definitely hit him hard. And I think he was actually surprised by how hard it hit him. And I was reading an article uh, just the other day um, online by a journalist. I can't remember now which publication. I think it may have been the LA Times. And, you know, the guy who had written it had had COVID and was talking about, you know, I I had COVID and here are the things that they don't tell you about. And he basically talked about the fear that he had lived with because you have the virus and you're watching the news and you're seeing, you know, all these terrible things that are happening to people who seem to be fit and seem to be healthy and you know, yet they're in in an intensive care or on a ventilator, and and I think that that kind of anxiety is actually one of the the toughest parts to deal with. Um, so thank God anyway, he's great and he's he's doing good again.
0: Yeah, that's good to it's good to hear. Uh, oh, that's a high powerful uh, boxing media couple, Kate. I like that. Uh... <laughs> I'm Mark
3: Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast each week, says Fabregas, Nader Manua, and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter, and he said, oh, afterwards, <laughs> the game's just about
1: doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film, and half the squad was asleep. <laughs>
0: Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. All right, here's what I want to finish up with. Um... You have done this before, but I think every time you do something like this, um, uh, people who sort of either follow soccer or sports media are like, wow, this is amazing. It probably just speaks to just how uh, how lame Americans are when it comes to learning other languages, just to be very blunt. And I put myself in that category as well. But um, you speak, you are fluent in Spanish, French, and German. And during live Champions League coverage, you have done interpretations uh, in all of those languages. So if, if a, a coach or player is speaking in one of those languages, you can listen to their answers and then you translate those answers in English uh, in real time for the audience, which is quite frankly just, there's no other word to say it, but sick. It's just a ridiculously excellent talent. Um, <laughs> and I remember seeing the clip uh, from Leon coach uh, Rudy Garcia when you do this. So I want to, I'm pro- maybe I've asked you about this before. But it is fascinating to me, like when when you know that you are about to translate something in one of these languages. Let's just take uh, let's just take French for the moment, um, and you're doing this in real time, Kate. You're doing this live on television. Like, how do you get your brain to the point where you're thinking in French? You know what I mean? You're you're presenting in English. The whole program is in English, but now you have to go into you have to, you have to get your brain to a place where you're listening intently and translating intently in a different language. Like, if you could, just take me through the process of what you're doing on air to get to that place, because I, I really find that just a pretty remarkable thing to see.
3: Do you know, I'm not sure if I know what the trick is. I, I feel like, um, I've, I've always been blessed with an ability to kind of skip back and forth between the the two languages and not just not somehow find that too problematic. I think that, um, I, you know, I find it interesting that, that CBS kind of thought, well, why don't we just try this? Let's see if it works. Because, you know, having worked in, in Champions League for however long or European football, we're always waiting for the interviews to come in after the game. And, and no one's ever – everybody's always known that I speak the languages, but we've always waited until, let's see who we get in English. Because I think with TV, you're always so kind of intent on – um, let, let's do this and it has to be clean. So we don't want to put somebody in a position where they may fail. Um, and CBS, either very cleverly or <laughs> or quite meanly decided to put me in that position where they thought, well, Hey, we'll give it a go. And I know that, you know, some of the, obviously there's a bunch of, of British people working on the show because we're based in London. And I think they actually thought, oh, that's a, that's a risky shout. Maybe, you know, maybe we shouldn't do that. And CBS and Pete kind of said, well, Let's try it. And if, if it doesn't work, we'll all have a laugh at her because she says she can speak four languages fluently and obviously she can't. Um, and I don't really know where the switch comes. I, I just feel like when I when I hear it, I understand it. And I don't know why that is. I think a big part for me was... Growing up, I, I always wanted to learn Spanish. Don't know why. I just I just thought it was cool. I'd been on a couple of vacations with my parents, and I always thought, oh, I'd really like to be able to speak to people here. You know, as Brits, we often went to Spain on holiday, and um, I just decided that, okay, school doesn't let me learn Spanish. There wasn't the option to do that. So I'm going to go to Spain when i when I finished school at 17. I'm going to go to Spain. I'm going to go learn Spanish over there and I'll just spend a few months there and then I'll come back and I'll I'll carry on my normal life. But I actually never carried on normal life. I ended up, um, I learned Spanish. I did like a Spanish uh, high school diploma. I ended up doing university college over there. And then from there, I I decided I wanted to learn more languages. So at college, I did a translation interpreting degree and I could have gone through that. I think it was a four-year degree. I could have gone through it without never actually having been and spent time in in Germany or in France. And I felt like I I have a natural gift for languages. And so I felt like I could learn it all really well on paper. But then, you know, as anybody who learns languages knows, you think you know it from like learning your grammar and studying your verbs and all those things. And then you, you hear somebody speaking it and it comes at you so fast that you're just totally thrown because your brain is used to processing everything kind of in, in, the, in your own time on paper, and it's easy to break it down. But when it's kind of thrown at you at, this, at the rate we all speak at when we're, we're talking casually, it's, it's a totally different thing. And so I decided, you know what, for me to really feel comfortable with these languages and really be good at the job I want to do, which was I wanted to translate. Um, I decided, let me just go and I'll put a, a hold on my, career, on my degree, and I'm going to go and spend a year in in Germany, then I'll spend a year in France and then I'll pick my degree back up, which my parents probably thought was a terrible idea. Um, but I did it because I was relatively headstrong. And um, I went and spent a year in Germany, spent a year in Paris, and really just became comfortable with the language. And I, and I think I'm now a massive, um, a massive supporter of that idea that if you want to learn languages, as much as it's great to learn it on paper, you know, for you actually really to have that ability to go back and forth and for you to to feel comfortable and not feel like you actually have to make a switch in my head. Okay, wait, I'm in French mode or wait, I'm in German mode. And for it to just be that level of comfort, I I just think you have to spend time there. So it becomes second nature to you. And that's obviously, you know, lots of us pick up learning a language later in life. And, you know, you got kids or you've got responsibilities and you can't necessarily do that. I was a 17 year old who didn't really know where she was going and what she was doing exactly. And I had the luxury of making those choices Um, and just kind of working in bars and restaurants and financing my way through until I really did find some direction. Um, So I think for me, it's just that kind of having been immersed in it means that I feel like I actually don't need to find that that switch of, okay, let me let me dial into French now. I don't know if that makes any sense.
0: It does um one of the things that's uh, that would be interesting to me is, you know, um players can use um for lack of a better word, or players or coaches certainly could use some kind of slang in their language. that's I'm not saying that pejoratively, but just words that might be specific to that language that might not be so familiar to someone who's not immersed in that language every day. Has that, when you have been translating in soccer, has that, has that ever come up? Has, um, has it ever been, um, has there ever been a word where uh, it's sort of tricky for you and then you got to figure out in real time, how do I translate this?
3: Yeah, that's interesting. I, um, because I, I've even though I've lived, I think I was eight, eight years in total in Germany. I was four, four something in Spain, and I was a year and a bit in France. And even though I, you know, I went to football games over there, I went to football games in in all three countries. I hung out with people who, you know, were sports fans like me, but I also spent most of my time with people who weren't sports fans, and I and I probably. Whilst I've had lots of conversations and lots of experience in English talking about football or boxing, I really haven't had that in those other languages, except for German, where I, I ended up broadcasting and, and working in, in sports television um, the second time I was there. So there I really did get used to that sports language. So I think with German, I feel comfortable with it. I did, I think it was two or three years in total working on a on a sports network in Germany where we did like 24 hours rolling sports news. So I feel super comfortable with that. I did realize the other day we'd done, I think the Barcelona game had happened. And it was that was the first day that CBS made the call to just kind of put them on air because it was such a catastrophic result. And it felt like such a dramatic moment in kind of football history for Barcelona to be taken apart like that, that as soon as they saw that PK was speaking, they were like, let's let's put him on and, and hopefully she can translate what he's saying. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And so then I think after that, I was looking forward and I was thinking, I wonder if they'll do that again. And I was thinking, I wonder if I would struggle ever you know, with exactly that. That was my thought process of, I don't know if I know all the jargon in French for football, you know, for different conversations about positions or whatever it might be. And, So I started, I thought, you know, I should probably download a few French podcasts. (laughs) And so I started downloading a couple of French sports podcasts just to listen in, just to kind of get used to that football talk. Because we do often talk in cliches, but they're not necessarily cliches that you're super, super used to if you're not constantly having these football conversations. So um, the one thing I think that's that's so wonderful about language is, is often that You know, fortunately, even if you don't understand one single word, if you understand the rest of the sentence, you can usually figure out what that is just because of the context of the sentence, Um, especially if you, you know, I think if you know multiple languages, there's lots of similarities between languages, especially Latin languages. So you kind of get a sense of, well, maybe it means this or maybe it means that. And I think when you're translating those things, you know, usually... You can't translate one each single word at a time, you have to let somebody say a sentence and then you, you kind of translate that sentence because especially in German for example if you take that language where the verb always comes at the end and you actually often don't fully understand the meaning of the sentence until you get to the end of it for that reason. Um, so I feel like you kind of go in sentences and you work in, in thoughts so you translate a thought rather than just word per word. Um, and that can be difficult, to be honest with you, at times, just because whilst I'm speaking and translating the sentence I just heard, you have to somehow, that's the bit I've found hardest about it, you have to somehow still be able to listen to what he's currently saying as I'm speaking and telling you what he just said. And that's the bit, sometimes I feel like, oh, did I miss a did I miss a word or two there? And, and I, I worry that there'll be somebody who'll be listening, who'll... Will say, oh, she, she got that word wrong or she missed a word <laughs> because that's probably what I would do if I was listening. Um, but fortunately, people have been very kind to me so far.
0: All right, the last one for me is uh, some people will hear this uh, prior to the Champions League final, some people will hear this after the Champions League final. Uh, it is uh, PSG against Bayern Munich, uh, Real Madrid, Kate has traditionally been the sort of, I guess, the standard when it comes to sort of the greatest Champions League ever in the the last 20 years i know Barca has won a ton since 2005 but nobody's sort of uh, gone where Real has gone um this Bayern team has sort of scored a crazy amount of goals in the lead up to the final if they end up winning if they end up beating PSG where would you sort of rate them as an all-time Champions League team that would be my that would be my one soccer question for you if you if you would like it
3: Yeah, I think they have a really good shout at being one of the best Bayern teams ever. Um, You know, Bayern has kind of... Bayern, it's it's interesting. They haven't won the Champions League as many times as you kind of... I I just, in my mind, I assume that they've won it more times than they have just because of the the history of the club and the fact that you've always seen it as that one of the elite. Um, I think that this is a team that, that does still... I don't know that it necessarily has weaknesses, but it plays in a in a way and a style of football that can allow the team to be exposed. And I think that PSG have the players and the mentality to do that. And I think that you could you could end up being surprised in in the sense that we've seen a, a Bayern team that's that just rolled over a team like a Barcelona but then actually get exposed by a PSG and the individual brilliance that they have with a Di Maria, Neymar, Mbappe. Um, so I do think it's a real 50-50. I think if Bayern win this one, it's just, they could well be here to to stay for a while. Because I think that the one thing that you've seen with this Bayern team is that, you know, this is kind of a transitional year. They, they lost. Or the last maybe two years have been a transitional year because, you know, they lost those players like a a Robin or a Ribéry and all these kind of experienced older heads who had, you know, seen them win the treble and had been such an integral part of the team and such leaders in the team. And it's kind of interesting because it's almost like Barcelona and, you know, they lost some of those bigger players and they needed to refresh and they needed to bring in new talent and they needed to kind of keep up with the modern game. And Barcelona have failed to do that, and they haven't put any of those supporting players around Lionel Messi to help him continue to shine. But Bayern has done a really fantastic job of transitioning. So I think if this team hits these heights, even if they don't win, they'll still be a team that will be there and about for the next few seasons. And I think that we could see Hansi Flick become a really big name in, in management as well. I think his journey, given that... He was just seen as the guy to fill in when he first took over, and somebody who, you know, was was okay for the moment. But let's have, let's put him in charge, just kind of calm everything down after everything went so wrong in the Nico Kovac, and then let's look for a big name. And you know, traditionally that's what they've always done. They bring in a Carlo Ancelotti or whoever else that they feel can handle the the big egos in the dressing room, who has you know proven experience winning on the biggest stage in Europe. And I know that Hansi Flick had experience you know, with the, the World Cup win in twenty fourteen and yes he's been part of that German setup for a long time, but he didn't have any um, any experience in terms of being the main guy and being the you know, at a club level either. And so I think for him to have transitioned in this smoothly and and put Bayern in the position they're in is fantastic and will massively raise his stock if, if they go on and, and win this tournament. Um so yeah, I, I think you're totally right. Could be it could be one of the best buy-ins that we've ever seen, I think, throughout throughout history of football.
0: Yeah, well give some love to Alfonso Davies when you're when you're on the air. It's uh, he's uh
3: Oh, he's, he's so great. I I <laughs> love watching him play. Really enjoy watching yeah. him play.
0: He's uh um it's it gives the uh Canadian national team uh something uh, really exciting heading forward uh with uh the World Cup uh being in uh, Canada, US, and uh, in Mexico coming up soon. That should be really awesome. Here, all right. Uh, Kate Abdo, as I mentioned, is uh, the uh, presenter. Do we do we use presenter still, Kate, uh, in the United States of America now or no? Or you you just you like? Hosts. I don't know. What you, you guys like always
3: seem to say host. I really don't mind. I, I kind of like the the but, idea of host. To me, is kind of more inclusive, more welcoming. I, I kind of like that. Yeah, I agree. I agree.
0: Yeah. I think I think I think this is just my guess. What do I know? But I think there are some on-air talents who don't like presenter because maybe it feels too much like acting, theatrical. Where host is
3: yes, yeah. mm-hmm. a little,
0: a little different. Yeah, but I don't know. You know, it could just be the American ego and narcissism kicking in there. But we'll use host Kate. Kate Abdo is the host of the UEFA Champions League and UEFA Europe Europa coverage. I don't know why I keep saying Europe Europa coverage for CBS Sports. Um, CBS is a uh, Champions League uh, production is mostly on CBS All Access, which will um, cost you some money. But, uh, you know, if you're a uh, sort of a hardcore fan of the Champions League, um, that's probably something that you are uh, going to purchase because that's where you get the games. Kate, of course, can also be seen on um, Fox's uh, premier boxing champions coverage, and uh, the likelihood is she'll probably have 17 other jobs by the next time. I speak with her, whenever that is. All right, Kate, enjoy London. Have a great Champions League uh, call. Uh, As you know, uh, I have great admiration for your work. Um, I think you're just incredibly professional. And so I'm glad to see uh, um, you continuing to get some very, very cool jobs. And thank you so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast.
3: Thank you. I really appreciate you saying that. Thank you.
0: All right, back in the studio, my thanks to uh, Austin Carp. And Anthony Krupe and Kate Abdel for their time and their insight um, if you like these kinds of conversations please go to the sports media with Richard Deitch page give us a five-star review and uh, leave a comment that really helps uh, no bullshit it just it helps the podcast uh, continue uh, given that this is an independent podcast uh, with cadence 13 head to the archives if you like these uh, kind of discussions before this one we talked to Anson Carter of the NHL and James Andrew Miller of, uh, of uh, best-selling uh, book fame on the uh, status of uh, where sports television broadcast contracts are going. For that, uh, we went inside the bubble with ESPN's Holly Rowe, Tanya Ganguli of the LA Times, Stefano Fissaro of ESPN, three reporters covering three um, different bubbles. And uh, you can just go down all the archives. Hopefully you will find some stuff uh, that you are interested in. I want to thank uh, Sean Cherry patrick antonetti again thanks to uh chris corcoran spencer brown and john mcdermott at cadence 13 and of course thank you to the audience appreciate you guys listening and supporting this podcast uh both here with cadence and uh, for many years at sports illustrated we will see you again very soon on the sports media podcast